I want to have just a few minutes of uh, prayer together as a congregation, and um, uh, I want to do some praying. I invite you uh, to pray as well. And so um, I was wondering if, as in a few minutes when we begin, if someone would be willing to be the lead-off batter and just uh, start off by praising God for who He is and, and for His greatness. Is there anyone here who would be willing to, in a few minutes, stand up and pray loudly to do that? Up there in the balcony, yes. Mike Egley, okay. And then secondly, um, I think we should be praying for our nation, continue to pray for uh, our president and for um, our leaders, for our troops overseas. We just need to keep praying for them. God tells us to pray for uh, those who are in leadership, whoever they may be. Uh, whoever, regardless of who we voted for, we need to pray for those who are in uh, charge of our country. God commands us to do that in His Word. Is there someone here to be willing to stand and pray for our nation and for our troops? And, yeah, in a minute. Okay, thank you. And then um, our building project, uh, just one final thing. Our, our church is um, trying to, to build, to add on to our facility. We need space. But more than that, we need God's will to be done. We need Him to guide us. And I wonder if someone would be willing to uh, stand and uh, pray for that. Anyone? Hey, thank you, Jack. Appreciate that. Anything else I could pray for you for? Is anyone here who has a, a need? Uh, I could pray for Greg's arm here. That's a nice cast you got, man. How far does that go up? All the way? Dude. All right, Greg's wing. All right. That's right. Anyone else? Anything I can pray for anyone for or something you're concerned about? I'd be glad to do that. Okay. Let's pray. And um, for those of you who agreed to pray, just stand up. And if anyone else just suddenly feels moved, feel free to pray as well. And we'll just spend a, a few minutes worshiping God through prayer.
Lord, we thank you that you're here with us tonight, that you're not a figment of our imagination, that you're not a, uh, an opiate for the masses, Lord, but that you are truly God, that there is none but you. We worship you, we love you, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us. To think, Lord, that people who are as worthless and sinful as us would be bought at the great price of your Son's blood. Lord, such love makes us giddy, such love makes us fall down on our faces in worship, that you should love us so much. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your great love for us. Help us to sink in through our thick skulls. Help us to recognize how much you've loved us in Christ and to love you in return. Lord, I do pray for Greg and his arm that it would heal quickly. I pray for anyone else here tonight who's facing physical ailments, surgeries, tests, medical tests. Lord, that you would heal them, strengthen their bodies, and give them peace. Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who's out of work or looking for work or struggling with finances, that you provide for them. I pray, Lord, for those who are going through difficulties in relationships, maybe marriages, friendships, difficult situations at work. Lord, would you give them wisdom to know how to respond to difficult people in difficult circumstances? And Lord, now as we open up your Bible to study it, I pray God speak to our hearts. I, I, I pray, Lord, spare these people from just hearing a sermon. Lord, let them hear the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts. Let me hear it too. God, that's why we open the Bible, not to just get some facts in our head, Lord, but to, to meet with you and to have you transform us. And Lord, that's what we want tonight. We don't want anything less than that as we study the Bible. So Lord, speak to our hearts. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, any children here? Kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to Children's Church through the door over here by the piano. And I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, which is in the hymn rack in front of you, that's on page 720 if you're using a pew Bible. Isaiah 44, page 720 in pew Bibles. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8 tonight. A very fascinating text. The text just kind of interests me in a lot of ways. Isaiah 44, 6 to 8. Let me just read that before you dig in. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me... There is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. I had an uh, interesting uh, conversation with a friend of mine about a year ago. He and I went out to lunch together. And uh, uh, this fellow is, is a really nice guy, very intelligent, um, scientific background, you know, one of these people who have been trained in the sciences. So he has a very logical, empirical, just show me the evidence kind of minds. Maybe that's kind of how you are. You know, show me the facts. Don't just tell me to leap out in faith. I want to know the proofs for why uh, I want to, what I believe. You know, give me the evidences and the, the hard data. That's the kind of person he was. And he wanted to get together for lunch and just talk about um, God and about uh, Christianity and the faith. Uh, he had been an atheist, 
But then a series of um, coincidences happened in his life, one after another, boom, boom, boom. And he just saw these coincidences lining up in his life, and he began to sort of you know, look around like, maybe I'm not alone here after all. It was just too much for him to be able to dismiss. And so he began investigating whether or not there's actually something out there. Whatever. But, but he was no longer satisfied with just saying, no, there's nothing out there. He was now kind of open. So he wanted to have lunch. You know, I was a, a minister and we were sort of an acquaintance. So he sits down. He, he's a very blunt person, which is part of his charm. He says, okay, Jeremy, give, your, give me your take on this whole God thing. What do you think? You know, I was like, wow. And, and then, then he said this. This is the one that really got me. He said, and don't tell me that you have the truth in the true way. Because I know, one thing I do know, is that anyone who claims to have the truth is wrong. Which, you know, is interesting because it's a self-refuting statement. But, you know, all that aside, you know, I just like, what do you say to a guy like that? What do you say? You know? It's like, check please. I mean, we're done, I guess. But, um, you know, I continued to talk to him. We had lunch. And I went ahead and told him anyway that Jesus Christ is the, the only way, as, as I understood it, and I tried to point him to Christ. But, you know, it was a good conversation for me, not only because it was a joy to share my faith with somebody, but, but it, I think conversations like that for me help keep me intellectually honest about my faith. You know, when I'm here with all of you guys and we're singing these songs, we've got great music, it's easy to believe in God. It's so easy. But when I'm, like, sitting across the table from someone I respect who's intelligent and educated and they're like asking me why do you believe in God and why do you think if there is a God that your God is that God I mean it's yeah, that's good it keeps me fresh it keeps me limber you know and I have to revisit all that why do I think those things um, I think this is true for us as Americans we live in a pluralistic culture where there are a myriad of religious options available to us and how do you know which is true I mean, how do, how do you know whether or not it's true that there is one God, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet? I mean, true or false? How do you know? Uh, how do we know whether or not Buddha really was enlightened as he sat there and meditated under that tree? And, and he, had, he says he claimed to have enlightenment, and his teaching is that, you know, this is a gross oversimplification, but that this world around us is actually an illusion, that my own existence is an illusion, that I'm not really here. And, and enlightenment is when you come to that knowledge and nirvana is when you cease to exist like a match going out. You know, is that true or not? Or did Joseph Smith in upstate New York really receive the golden tablets of the Book of Mormon from the angel Moroni or not? Is Jesus Christ really the Son of God, the Savior, or not? And, and you know, we have to... And how do we know? How do you pick? How, how do you decide? You know, in, in our culture in America, there really are so many different options. When the country was first settled, it was pretty simple. You, you know, your options were kind of like Christianity or Christianity. It's sort of like what you had to choose from, and there are different denominations within that. But that's not how it is uh, today in America. When you look out at the religious landscape in America today, it's a lot more like a shopping mall, you know, with just hundreds of stores and options to choose from. You still have your big box, big brand anchor stores like, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism and Judaism. And then you've got these kind of smaller, medium-sized stores that you can go into, like Islam is growing in America, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, those kind of cults. Uh, and then there's like... Uh, you know, 
scores and scores of little tiny shops. You know in the mall there's always like little squirrely shops kind of tucked away in a corner somewhere. Are there those vendors? Like you're walking down the, the aisles in the mall and there's those guys out in the middle selling you know, exercise equipment or cell phones or whatever. You get all these little religious options too that they're all over like Scientology and Reiki and uh, Wicca or, or the one that's popular now among the Hollywood types, uh, Karbalah. You know, there's all these different religions that you can pick from. And so if you're a, a thinking person who's trying to figure out the truth and you're walking through the shopping mall of American religious choices, like, how do you know? How do you pick? It, it, a lot of us, you know, we just get overwhelmed. Some people say, well, they must all be true. I, I think they're all true. Which, when people say that, they usually tell me they haven't actually studied any of them. <laughs> because, you know, it's easy to say that until you actually start studying the different religions and see how radically different they are. So, so I, at least for me anyway, I, I think I can look at the different options and say they can't all be true. You know, Buddha says there isn't a God, and, you know, Islam says there is a God. I mean, you can't be a God and not be a God at the same time. But, so, so, you know, how do you know? How do you make a decision? And for those of us who are Christians, do we really have the, the chutzpah and the temerity to go out into that shopping mall and to say, Jesus Christ is the way. Capital V, capital way. Can we really say that? And if so, how do we know? Well, uh, this is an, uh, sort of an interesting dilemma, but it's not new. It's not a new dilemma. The people in Isaiah's day, the Israelites, faced a similar situation. Uh, they, too, were surrounded by a myriad of religious choices. Uh, Israel was in those days. All the nations around Israel practiced all kinds of different religions. And, and if you're an Israelite, you, you had just tons of different options on how to express yourself spiritually. Uh, among the nations around Israel, there was astrology, there was witchcraft and magic, there was divination, you know, the, the foretelling of the future through signs and omens, and, you know, they throw sticks on the ground and try to interpret the sticks. Or they, the other thing that is kind of gross, they'd, they'd kill an animal and cut out its liver, and, and they'd read the liver. It was a type of divination that they would use. Um, there was emperor worship, monarch worship. You could worship the king. And then, of course, there was idolatry. There were literally hundreds and hundreds of different gods to choose from. It was like a shopping mall. You know, there were sky gods and moon gods and sun gods and earth gods and water gods and ocean gods and mountain gods and gods of death and gods of fertility. There were also national deities. Every nation and people sort of also had its kind of chief deity. So there was Marduk of the Babylonians and Dagon of the Philistines and Baal of the Canaanites. It's all these gods to choose from. And in the midst of this religious smorgasbord that around Israel, there was Israel worshipping one God and one God only. I mean, how out of step? <laughs> one God? And the pagans would have looked at Israel like, what is wrong with you? That was totally counter the pagan mindset. The pagan mindset said, hey, the more the better. Diversify your portfolio. Uh, worship as many gods as you can because you never know which one's going to come in handy someday. That was the pagan mindset. Like, I mean, the pagans might have worshipped the God of Israel. Like, well, might as well. Maybe he'll help us too. And it, the idea of, of paganism is wear as many amulets and talismans as you can and practice whatever rituals you can to appease as many spiritual beings as you can. So for Israel to stand up in the midst of that context and to say, no, 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 no. One God. We worship one God. I mean, they looked 
totally clueless in the midst of that cultural context. But it was even worse than that. Not only did they say, we worship one God, but they then had the, the, the you know, gutsiness to say, and that is the only true God. Not just did they worship one God, but they then proclaimed that the gods of the nations were actually false gods. And the, the nations are just like, whatever. I mean, you're so far out, Israel. As it says in chapter 44, verse 6, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. God, you know, how intolerant of you. You know, how close-minded and bigoted, God. You know, you think you're the only God. God, you're so narrow. No, look, that's his claim. There's no God besides me. I'm the first... I'm the last. Man, I was the first guy here, God says. I didn't see any gods. And when they close up the shop or turn out the lights, I'm going to be here. No gods then. And there's nothing in between. God brackets reality. And there's nothing in between. He says, I'm the only God there is. There's not a pantheon. There's not a fraternity of gods. It's just me. That's it. One God. One God. So we ask the question again, I mean, how do you know? I mean, how do you know there's only one God? How could Israel proclaim this? How do they know that the gods of the nations are false? I mean, it's interesting to make that assertion, but you know, what kind of evidence can you muster, God? And so what, what's fascinating to me about this passage is verse 7. Because in verse 7, God gives us a proof for why he can claim to be the only God. So all you scientific types out there who just want the proof, you just want the facts, it's like God says, okay, fine. You want a proof? I'm going to give you a proof. You want an evidence? Fine, let's all get together, let's have a big meeting, a public hearing, and I'm going to give you an evidence. Not the only evidence, not the only proof, but God's going to give them a proof of why He is the only true God. Isn't this fast? I mean, I don't know, that just kind of excites me. So here it is, verse 7. Here's the proof. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. So tell me the flow of history up to this point. And then here's the key. And what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. In other words, God says, I am going to give you a litmus test for divinity. Divine beings can tell the future. So this is how we're going to know who the true God is. Whoever can tell the future accurately is the real God. It's, it's a pretty good test. You know, I, I don't know, I hear that and I go, yeah. If someone can accurately tell the future, then that's a pretty good sign that they've got something going on in terms of being God. Um, it reminded me of a quote I read about by C.S. Lewis. I included it in your sermon notes. If you could just take out your sermon notes for a second. C.S. Lewis said, Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. God knows the future. Any divine being should be able to do that. And so that's what we have here in Isaiah 44, verse 7. God says, we're going to see who's the real God. We're going to have it out right here. We're going to see whoever can tell the future is the real God. Now this is a major theme in Isaiah. It is a major theme in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. 
And, and I want you to get a sense of the, the weightiness of this argument, the way in which Isaiah uses it. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little just kind of read-a-thon here. I, I want to read a series of texts with you from Isaiah chapter 40 through 48. We're just going to kind of read them quickly in order. And you may feel like I'm kind of belaboring the point, but I just, you know, bear with me and let the cumulative effect of these texts just kind of pile up in your mind. So turn to Isaiah chapter 41. And I want you to see how many times God uses this argument in these eight chapters. So the first one is, is Isaiah 41, 21 to 23, where God begins his whole thing about, if you're the real gods, tell me the future. Isaiah 41, verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. So here's the summons. All right, whoever wants to argue this, come on into the court, come on into the ring. We're going to have it out. We're going to see who the real God is. Come on in. Verse 22. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are gods. So if you're going to be a real God, you should be able to tell us what the future holds. And if you can't tell us what the future holds, you're not a real God. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 8 to 9. Isaiah 42, 8 to 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So how does God protect his glory from the idols? Well, verse 9. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Or Isaiah chapter 43, verse 9. 43, verse 9. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. All right, here it is again. Come on, let's all get together. Let's have it out. Time to see who the real God is. Everyone gather around. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear it and say, it is true. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed, there's that, I've told you the future, and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Or look at Isaiah 45, as if you aren't convinced already of the, this argument. Look at Isaiah 45, verses 20 and 21. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Again, this call to gather. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Again and again he makes this argument. And as if that wasn't enough, I just got one more for you. Check it out. Isaiah 48, verse 3. I, I just, again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to you know, tire you out here, but I just want you to hear the successive force of this argument in the text. Isaiah 48, verse 3. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were, 
The sinews of your neck were iron, your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago, before they happened I announced them to you, so that you could not say, My idols did them. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You've heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? So it's like God gets right in our face and says, Okay, I'll give you the proof. Here it is. I tell the future. Now come on, stop being so stubborn and admit it. I am the true God. So God is giving us a litmus test and He does it over and over. So this must be important when you see how many times it's been repeated. That He is the true God and the way He proves it and the way He disproves other gods is by telling the future. It's so like I said, those of you who are kind of scientific empirical types, you should be psyched about this. You should be like, yes, finally, proofs and evidences. God is giving us a way to test the truth claims of other religions. And it is by who can foretell the future. So, you want to see a prophecy where God foretells the future? You know, we, we want evidence and proof, but now I'm going to ask you, are you sure you want it? What if you get it? What are you going to do with it? I mean, is it here? I want to look at it with you. In fact, if you want to take out your sermon notes for a minute and look on the inside, I wrote up a big section here on predictive prophecy in the Bible. And um, there it is. I, I'm not going to go through all these verses, but, but there are really dozens and dozens and scores of predictive prophecies in the Bible where God predicts something ahead of time in often very minute detail and it comes to pass historically just as he said. It's a great phenomenon and you do not find it, this is key, in other world religions. Investigate other world religions. Don't take my word for it. Read up on it yourself. You do not find the kind of predictive prophecy as far in advance as you find in the Bible with the same kind of detail and accuracy that you find in the Bible. This is unparalleled among the world religions. So, uh, I want to look at just one prophecy with you, though. It's Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Let's see if God can tell the future. Let's just check it out. You want a proof? You want an evidence? All right. Here we go. Isaiah 53, page 731 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> Isaiah 53 is important. It's a prophecy of the Messiah and his suffering and death. It's a very famous prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah who's going to come and be crucified. And what's important about this prophecy that you know is that it was written centuries and centuries before the coming of Jesus Christ. At the most, I would say probably about seven centuries before the coming of Christ. But even the most liberal scholars, even scholars who do not believe the Bible is the Word of God and criticize it, even they will tell you that this was written centuries before the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so, you know, when you read this, just keep that in mind. This is a couple hundred years before Jesus came, at the very least. So I'm going to read this prophecy. And, and what I want you to do is you listen to it. I want you to compare it to the story of Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe you know that story. Maybe you see the movie The Passion. Uh, the, the Passion is, uh, the, you know, think of The Passion if you've seen that movie. So to just compare this story to The Passion. So here we go, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. 
Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. You think of the life of Jesus and you know, that's what He did. He cooked up people's infirmities and carried their sorrows all the time. Jesus was like magnetically attracted to miserable people. He was constantly hanging out with people who were sick and um, uh, crippled in different ways and rejected by society. This is the people He gravitated toward. Yet, verse 4, we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced. He was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. And He was crushed for our iniquities. I think of that, that movie and how many times in the movie we see Christ staggering with His cross and falling and being crushed again and again under the weight of the, the cross on His shoulders. And finally, He um, collapsed from physical exhaustion. They had to conscript some guy from the crowds to help Him carry the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You know, you know if I didn't know I was in the Old Testament, I would think I was reading the Apostle Paul here. This all I did. Jesus died for our sins. Our sins are upon Him. You know, if I, I didn't see Isaiah at the top of the page, I might think I was somewhere in... Paul's letters. This reads like the New Testament. This is like New Testament theology right in the Old Testament. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And we know that as Christ stood before his accusers, they would pepper him with questions and accusations and lies, and he didn't say a thing. He just stood there until they'd finally bind him with an oath and make him talk. But otherwise, he didn't say a thing. didn't say a thing. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Oh, we just read that. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed. Mark that. He was killed. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And we stop there. We know that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Why would Isaiah include that little detail? I mean, think about it from Isaiah's perspective. That's pretty random. It's just out of the blue. He's put in a grave and it was a grave of a rich person. You know, why would you have that in Isaiah? And then we see Christ laid in the rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Though he had done no violence, no deceit was in his mouth, Jesus didn't deserve the death he received. Verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And this is what Jesus said throughout his ministry. I'm doing the Father's will. Jesus did not die because he was out you know, maneuvered by his enemies. He didn't die because he deserved it. He was doing the Father's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the Lord will prosper. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, get this. After the suffering of his soul, which includes death, we just studied that, he will see the light of life. The resurrection. <laughs> this is Easter proclaimed 700 years before Easter. Well, come on, that's cool. That's really cool. I mean, you've got to love that. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Again, am I reading the New Testament? No, I'm reading the Old Testament. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. We know that that dividing of the spoils came in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Come on, that's amazing. You've got to admit, that's amazing. Can you really just read that prophecy and go, I don't know. I don't know, it may not be true, I don't know. Come on. You know, what's it going to take to convince you? I think there's some of us here who say, well, I just need proof. I need evidence from God. But the proof is there. The problem isn't up here. The problem is right here. It's not that you don't have enough evidence and proof. It's that you don't want to believe it. And I know why you don't want to believe it. For the same reason that I didn't want to believe it before I was a Christian. You know why I didn't want to believe it? Because I knew that would mean giving up control of my life out of my own hands. That's why I fought it. Not because there isn't proof and evidence, but because, bottom line, I wanted to do life my way. I wanted to live in sin. I wanted to have Jeremy be the master. And I knew that if I were to surrender to Christ, that my life would be out of my hands. So I know why. You don't want to come to Christ. Same reason no one wants to. Because we're scared. But I'll tell you what. The best decision I ever made was giving my life to Jesus Christ. And I wish I could even take credit for the decision, but I acknowledge that it was God who put the faith in me and opened my heart. I've never regretted one second anything in my life about following Jesus. I've regretted things that I've done, but I haven't regretted Christ in my life, ever. It's been awesome. So what's keeping you from Christ? Are you still going to stand there and dig in your heels and say, oh, I don't know. That prophecy thing, I'm not sure about that. You know, you know, I think there's some of us here that, that if an angel of God would just appear here in all of His glory and say, believe in Jesus, there's some of you here that go, I don't know. That could just be special effects. You know? Those Baptists are pretty tricky. You know, I, I, I bet there's like a hologram and some kind of smoke screen and laser light show. You know, I don't know. I mean, they can pretty do some pretty amazing things with special effects these days. I don't know. I mean, no, it just, it's not the facts you need. It's a new heart that you need. They will surrender to Christ. The facts are there. You can go dig into it and look into it. You know, if you want to come up with an excuse, you can keep coming up with an excuse until Jesus turns, returns. And at that time, the excuses won't count anymore. And if you keep making excuses till Christ returns, someday we'll have to stand before Him and there will be no excuses on that day. And God will have no excuse but to cast you away from Himself forever. So come on. Turn to Christ. Put your faith in Him. He alone proclaims the future. No other world religions do that. Are there prophecies in other world religions? Yes, actually there are. But what you find is that they fall into one of three categories. Either A, they're very vague and nebulous, you know, like Nostradamus kind of prophecies. So they can kind of fit into whatever you want them to fit into. You know, like call it the 1-800 psychic number. Tell me about the future. I see change in your future. Wow, amazing. Change in my future. You know, it's just so vague and nebulous it can fit in anything. Or the second thing you see with prophecies from other world religions is they're kind of like no-brainer prophecies. Like Muhammad, he actually made many prophecies in the Quran, but most of them have to do with 
imminent battles. And he would prophesy that he was about to defeat his enemies in battle as he propagated his religion through violence. And sure enough, he would win the battle. And look, I made a prophecy. I mean, but you know, what general doesn't prophesy victory to his troops? You know, sorry boys, but God told me we're about to be slaughtered. Let's go out there and fight. You know, just, of course you tell the troops they're going to win. I mean, this is just, you know, basic commanding people. And the other thing you see with other world religions, sometimes they're vague, sometimes they're no-brainers. The third thing is they're sometimes just wrong. Uh, Joseph Smith prophesied, you know, read it yourself, he prophesied that the Civil War was about to happen, which at the time was a no-brainer. But then he also prophesied that would be the end of the world. Well, it wasn't. You know, he's wrong. And so, so there are prophecies in other world religions, but I'm telling you, there is nothing like what we have here in God's Word. And God is calling us to Himself. So come to Christ. You know, get, get rid of these lame rationalizations. Well, I don't have enough information. I mean, come on. This is the problem right here. Find out the meaning of verse 8 of chapter 44. Going back to our text. Chapter 44, verse 8. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. You want the application of all this? You know, what does this mean for my life, practically speaking? Here's the application in verse 8. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You're my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there's no other rock. I know not one. God is real. And He is not just any God. He's the God of the Bible. He's the God who sent His Son Jesus Christ to die for me. Therefore, I shouldn't be afraid. Whenever I live in fear, and I mean, you know, staying up at night, tossing and turning, being anxious, worrying, tossing over fears in my mind, making things bigger in my mind than they really are. Whenever I live in fear like that, I am saying with my actions that I don't believe in God. You know, you ask me, Jeremy, do you believe in God? Well, of course I do. I just preached a sermon on the existence of God. Yeah, but, but your worry and your anxiety is preaching a different sermon. <laughs> if I really believed in God, I wouldn't just wind myself up in these fits of fear and, and stress. Fear is incompatible with faith. Fear is incompatible with faith. Um, it, it, is, it, it shows a lack of trust in who God is. So that's how I'm... I'm trying to work this out in my own life is to believe that there is a God and use that as my antidote to fear and anxiety. Let me just give you two quick examples of how I'm using this in my life and then I'll, I'll sit down and we can um, sing a song and close the service. Uh, you know, one area where I tend to stress out is with my children. Um, you know, if you don't have any fear and anxiety in life, just have kids and then you'll have fear and anxiety. It just kind of comes with, with the package. Uh, and it's, it's weird because my kids are doing really well I don't have anything right now I could point to and say this is a problem and they're healthy, they're doing good in school, they seem well-adjusted, they happy little kids. But, you know, I, I just worry about them. In fact, I'll be driving around, I'll just make up worries. You know, I'll be driving around like, what if? What if one of them got really sick? You know, what if uh, a bully at school started picking on them and I couldn't help them? Well, you know, what if uh, they talked about their faith and some teacher in the school started, you know, persecuting them because they're... We're talking about their faith in school, you know, and I just make up worries in my head. Next thing I know, I'm like in a tizzy, and I'm pulling in the driveway like, are the kids okay? Are the kids okay? You know, my wife's like, yeah, they're okay, you know, but I, I can just get myself worked up about things like that. And, and so I have to go back to the basics. Okay, there is a God. 
He is the true God. He has sent His Son, Jesus. He loves me. He knows the future. My kids are in His hands. And God can do a better job parenting them than I can. So put them into His hands and live in faith. So I fight against fear with faith in this living God. Or one other area that I get stressed out about or can is this whole building project thing. You know, we prayed earlier about our building. We need some more space in our facility and and we've been battling with the town to try to get this to happen for about six years now. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, what is we need to do? Do we need to go to the town uh, one more time and build here? Do we need to move off-site? And we're processing through this. And, you know, it stresses me out sometimes. And, you know, and I, I feel the pressure of it as kind of the, the figurehead in some ways of the church. And I, I think, am I doing a bad job leading? Shouldn't I have an answer? Shouldn't I be able to draw my sword and say, God has spoken to me. We go this way. You know. But I would be lying because I haven't heard a voice from heaven on this one. And so I'm like, what's wrong with me? Am I doing a bad job? And, and I could easily develop a really nice-sized ulcer about this. But um, the thing that keeps me from getting an ulcer is I come back to these basics. There is a God. Jesus is real. The buck stops with Him, not me. This is His congregation. The growth is from Him, so why shouldn't I think the solution is from Him? And I need to trust Him. And, and that's what keeps me sane, is I fight against fear with these basic facts that He is God. So I put it out there to you. What, what are you all freaked out about? What's got you churning and grinding your teeth at night and walking around the house trying to drink warm milk to go to sleep but you can't? What's got you freaked out? Go to the basics. There is a God. He knows you. He is your future and is in His hands. Jesus really died on the cross for you. God loves you. And use those basics as your weapon to fight against the monster of fear. And I'll take Him down every time. Because God is real. Apart from Him, there is no other rock. No, not one. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you are truly God, that you truly died on the cross for me, and that you predicted it 700 years in advance so that my slow, stubborn mind would have oodles of proof that you're real. God, I pray for anyone here tonight who is honestly, intellectually searching the truth, that they might see your glory in these facts, in this proof, God. Thank you that you condescend to our level. And give us proofs, even though you don't need to give us proofs. You've given us enough. And yet, Lord, you give us more and more so that we might believe. And Lord, I pray for those of us here who do know you and who do love you. Help us, Lord, not to live in fear. Help us to see our fear and anxiety is incompatible with faith. And Lord, I pray, cause us to fix our minds and our hearts on you. And to not be afraid. To let our minds be filled up with the hugeness of your person instead of the hugeness of our problems. Which aren't huge at all compared to you. Lord, give us faith. Thank you, Lord, that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our name. And it's in your knowledge of all things and your power over all things that we take confidence because you alone are God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.